We'll now put our head in the Word. And as we do so, let's pray. Almighty God in heaven, we praise your name, Lord, because you have not left us in a cloud. You've not left our understanding misty and cloudy, but you have uh, granted to us a clear and sufficient revelation in your word. You have given us your spirit to open our eyes, to know the truth of your word, the truth of our own hearts, the truth of the Savior. You've drawn us unto him. And he indwells us by his spirit as your wisdom for us. So we have the promise that we shall grow in wisdom as we grow from grace to grace and glory to glory. And we pray that you will give us understanding and wisdom as we deal with your word and we continue searching the scriptures with respect to this great doctrine of the Christian Sabbath. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit shall be our teacher now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are on the second outline there, the original intent. As we saw last night, and surely as all of us know, there uh, is this great controversy swirling uh, with respect to uh, the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, the relationship of Sunday uh, to the fourth commandment. Uh, this has become quite pronounced uh, in our own day uh, where there are people now who are uh, insisting that uh, every day since uh, the resurrection of Christ, every day is uh, the same and that there are no special days or that perhaps the church uh, must worship on one day and it's up to the church to set aside what day that is and the church has uh, established Sunday, and that's fine. The church could have established another day if it wanted to. And after we've met the uh, obligations of uh, corporate worship, uh, then we're free to use that day as we would please. Uh, and so you have all of this type of, of teaching going on, and then you have the position that uh, I began to set before you last night uh, with respect to the Sabbath, that the fourth commandment uh, is binding on us as New Testament Christians that Sunday, the Lord's Day, is uh, the Christian Sabbath and is basically uh, in its outline to be observed and used in the way that it was observed and used in the Old Testament. And so it has become a very heated controversy uh, in our day. And uh, unfortunately... Um, Many of us have not been alert to the seriousness of it, I think, uh, both in your OP Presbyteries and in the PCA Presbytery. Increasingly few are the men who are not taking excep exception to what the Westminster Standards teach with respect to uh, the Fourth Commandment. And so the controversy at this point is obviously uh, going to the side of uh, the broader approach uh, with respect to the day. Now the standards are quite clear and uh, it's good that at least people recognize that and would take an exception. But of course the standards cannot ultimately settle the issue for us. Perhaps those that are taking the exception to the standards 
uh, have uh, come to a clearer insight in Scripture. We know that's possible. Standards are fallible. And they must themselves always be judged by Scripture. So we, we really can't settle the issue uh, by the standards, although as long as we're under the standards, uh, we have a moral responsibility as elders uh, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to live and teach and abide by those standards. And so uh, they are important. I'm in no way denigrating them, but that can't settle the issue for us in this controversy. We also would recognize, surely, that uh, we are in need of the things that we talked about last night. We are in need of um, a greater communion and, and love for God, of, of spiritual grace and victory, and a real experimental enjoyment of the benefits and privileges that are ours uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But even that need uh, cannot uh, ultimately settle the question for us if God has established another way to meet those needs in uh, the New Testament then we may not be pragmatic and say, well, we have these needs that this promise meets, and so uh, surely the Sabbath must continue. No, it really boils down to the nature of the commandment of God. What does God intend when he gives the Sabbath in the fourth commandment? Is the fourth commandment a part of God's moral law of uh, equal uh, standing and validity of the other nine commandments, or is it something unique in the moral law because of uh, the unique relationship it had to uh, Israel and the Mosaic Covenant? And that's really the, the question that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, in God's providence, as I was thinking this morning, I, I like the way, Lynn, that it fell out by moving the practical sections from the end to each day because we now have some nice packaging of the remaining lectures because today we're going to concentrate on the, uh, the moral character of the Sabbath commandment. And tomorrow we're going to concentrate in the didactic portion on uh, Christ and uh, the Sabbath. And then Thursday morning we'll concentrate on uh, the uh, epistles and the Sabbath, uh, particularly as it relates to the change of day. And then in the afternoons this afternoon, we'll talk about uh, the private duties that belong to us as Christians. Tomorrow, we'll concentrate on structuring the day for our children, for those of us that have uh, young children. And then um, Thursday afternoon on preparing for the Sabbath. And then as kind of a send off on Friday morning, we're going to look at the great Sabbath work and an exposition of Psalm 92. So this morning, though, we want to see if we can't let God settle for us this issue of the nature of the fourth commandment. And as background, before we get into the text and, and your outline, let me remind you that in the Bible there are two types of commandments. There are moral laws that are eternally binding on uh, all of God's people. And there are temporary laws that in Christian ethics and theology we refer to as positive laws. Now, a positive law is not positive because it's not expressed in the negative. It's positive because it has, it's become a law by the force 
of God's will. It's not of necessity a law uh, is a consequence of God's nature and his relationship to his image bearer and our relationship to one another. So now, of course, to break a positive law is, is sin. It, uh, a positive law becomes moral uh, because once God gives us such a law, it's binding on whomever he gave it to. So we'll take, for example, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the, the garden. There was nothing inherently uh, good or evil about that fruit. I don't know what kind of fruit it was, but whatever it was, it wasn't poison. Uh, it was simply a fruit tree. It would look like all the other fruit trees, except God's word distinguished it from all the other fruit trees as a test of the will of Adam, as the probation of the covenant. And so that was a positive law, you see. It was, the tree was made off limits by the arbitrary, not that God himself is arbitrary, but by the arbitrary, an act of God's will. And thus it was a positive law. Now the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament and at least aspects of the judicial laws of the Old Testament would be positive laws. In fact, I think just purely as an aside, but this is more of a classroom this morning, so we can do a few asides, that in the whole discussion with respect to theonomy, uh, the issue that I think has not been addressed is the positive nature of the judicial sanctions. In the, uh, in the Old Testament. They're obviously not of a, of a moral nature because God himself violates them. And God cannot violate moral law. God cannot sin, even as our children's catechism uh, reminds us. And so uh, there are certainly aspects, although the principles uh, are, uh, and we'll see later, there's, there's an, an interrelationship of often of moral and positive law. Uh, but the, the ceremonial laws in particular are positive laws. And I'm glad. I love barbecue pork, and I'm glad to get back in the South where they don't barbecue just beef, but they barbecue pork. Now, if... Um, and it's probably better for me, too, isn't it, than beef? Oh, come on! <laughs> um, now, it had been a sin for a Jew in the Old Covenant to eat barbecue pork, but it's no sin for me uh, because the New Testament now tells me that all foods are permissible. And so that uh, is a, a positive law. It, it was a law at a time for God's people for particular purposes. It, the ceremonial law taught the people God's sovereignty over all of life, God's sovereignty over what they ate. Uh, and now Paul teaches us in the New Testament that we eat all things but under God's sovereignty. We must do it for his glory. And so a positive law. So there are those that would say then that the fourth commandment is a positive law. Now that in itself is strange. It's just tucked right in the middle of uh, nine non-positive laws, nine moral laws. But they would say that uh, it is merely a ceremonial and judicial law that was given for the Old Testament. Now moral law is a law that is a reflection of God's nature and governs Man's relationship to God and man's relationship to man. And it is of an eternal, perpetual nature. It is always law. Thus, it has always been a sin to commit murder. Uh, that wasn't, God couldn't tomorrow 
give us new revelation if, in fact, he gave me revelation and say, all right, you can now murder. No, uh, the sanctity of life is a part of uh, the relationship of, of man to creator as his image bearer and man's relationship to man. So moral law is a perpetual obligation on the people of God. Now, I give you this background because this is really where we must settle the issue. If the Bible is clear with respect to the nature of the fourth commandment, is it positive or moral? Uh, from that point forward, we can then look at how Christ deals with the law and how the New Testament deals with the law and how the day is changed. Uh, if it's simply a positive commandment, we need to know that now and let's go on about our life and, and seek to govern ourselves by whatever uh, other positive laws God's given us with respect to his worship. Now, we, the place this question is answered for us is not first off in the fourth commandment, though we could answer it there, but it's even more clearly answered in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. In the first of three creation ordinances. I remind you of that uh, great work by John Murray, Principles of Christian Conduct, and he uh, does a wonderful job there, and all of you should read this book and reread this book. Um, it, a wonderful job of developing the creation ordinances that we find here in Genesis chapter 2, how they relate to then uh, the Ten Commandments and how they relate to uh, the New Testament Christian. But by recognizing that they're creation ordinances, we see they precede not only the covenant of grace, they precede fall itself. These are rules that God laid down to govern his relationship to his people and our relationship to one another in the creation. Genesis chapter 1, we have a very clear declaration of the creative work of God. Chapter 2, the focus turns now from God's work as creator to God's relationship with uh, man, his image bearer. And basically in chapter 2, we have the, the foundation, the environment, and the conditions of the covenant of works. But as the spotlight shines now on man, the image bearer of God, we find these three um, precepts that are established. The Sabbath, which governs man's relationship to God. The labor ordinance, which governs man's relationship to uh, uh, the creation and his own livelihood. And the marriage ordinance, that governs man's uh, social relationships and is foundational to all social relationships. And that the Sabbath, then, is... As important, we see simply by its placement uh, in our life as is uh, the labor ordinance or the marriage ordinance. And of course, it's in this context of the Sabbath and the garden that God establishes the covenant with Adam. Let's read uh, these verses, Genesis 2, 1 through 3. It's on the top of your sheet. I can't wait to get back to my PCA friends and tell them that I was in an OP conference and they sang off overheads and they wrote the scriptures in the bulletin. <laughs> Thus 
Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their host, and by the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now here we see the original intent of God with respect to the Sabbath, and I believe we from this passage of Scripture, uh, can answer the question once and for all uh, with respect to the nature of this commandment. Is it a moral commandment or is it a positive commandment? We'll look at the text under these two headings, uh, the pattern of God's Sabbath and the prescription for man's Sabbath. For in these two ways, God establishes the Sabbath for man before the fall. He first establishes the Sabbath by his own Sabbath keeping. You'll note that it says that the heavens and earth were completed in all their host, and by or on the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Now this word that God rested from all the work which he had done is the root word from which we get the word Sabbath. God sabbatized on the seventh day. God kept a Sabbath. And in God's keeping of the Sabbath, he did so by revealing this, not for his sake, but for our sake. And we further see that as he then builds upon his own sabbatizing the prescription for our uh, Sabbath as well. Now, just what did God do when he rested or kept a Sabbath on the seventh day? Well, I believe there's three things in view, both from this text and comparing it with uh, other passages of Scripture, that God's Sabbath entailed three things. In the first place, as the text clearly spells out, God kept a Sabbath or rested in order to declare the completion of his work as creator. You'll notice how that's emphasized in the text. The heavens and the earth were completed and all their host. Now in this language, every created thing is included, are encompassed. The heavens would include the immediate heavens of our own atmosphere, and uh, all of the, the firmament, uh, which is not infinite, are uh, ultimately immeasurable, but is a finite, measurable, created entity made by, God, made by God. The heavens, the earth, which includes both the sea and the dry land, God had finished all of that creation and all their host. And by the term host, he again is talking about everything that inhabits the creation. Uh, the heavenly bodies, the, uh, the birds and the uh, creatures that fly in our own immediate environment, all uh, land and sea creatures, and of course angels and men, all are included in this word host. So that God uh, completed his creation and by or on the seventh day, he completed the work that he had done and he rested. Now, what we read here, I guess we could at first glance 
get the idea, well, he kind of did the finishing touches on the seventh day when it says that on or by the seventh day he completed his work. It's kind of like you, you fix a really nice dinner and it's really done, but now right before it goes to the table you, you garnish it or you fix the garnishings or, or whatever and then you take it out. But that's not what is intended here. Uh, to say that on or by the seventh day he completed his work, that he rested, it is the declaration of completion that took place on the seventh day. There were no other created acts done on the seventh day, but it was a declaration that God had finished his work of creation. Now, it's important to be reminded here of what the Savior himself says in John chapter 5, verse 17, that God did not cease all of his work. In John 5, 17, Jesus says, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. And he reminds us that uh, God has rested from one particular work, the work of creation, but that the work of providence and the special work of redemption are ongoing so that God continues to govern the world by his most holy, wise, uh, and powerful providence where he governs, protects, sustains, guides all of his creatures and all of their actions. And within his providence, there is a created work that goes on, but it is now an immediate, not an immediate creation, but a immediate creation. God still makes men and women. But now he does so by his spirit through the process of conception and birth. And God still makes trees, but he does so now through a process of seeds. Uh, but he is still governing all of that. It's still the spirit of God that gives life and takes away life. But we see in this a very important principle, the difference of create, between creation and providence. Now, the same is true with respect to uh, redemption. And uh, when we look at Romans chapter 4, we'll look a little more at the parallel of creation and redemption. There was an objective work of redemption that God uh, continued to do uh, in the covenant administration from Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, right up through the uh, completed work of Christ with his ascension and, and session at the right hand of God the Father. And there is the uh, subjective work of redemption that's taking place in the application of redemption as God, through the means that he's appointed, gathers and perfects his elect. And that's going on. Now, when we recognize that these other works are going on, it ought to cause us to ask the question, why is this so emphatic that God has completed his work of creation? And I, the only answer that can come to mind is that God wants clearly to establish the immediate nature of creation and its completion as an act of the Creator that we might recognize him and him alone as creator and as sovereign over all of the creation. And this is why it's very important in all of our discussions on creation that whatever position we come down to, that we, we must be able to affirm with Genesis chapter 1 the eight fiat acts of God. That God did not create 
through an evolutionary process at any stage in the creation. The text is clearly against that, and this declaration of completion is against that, you see. These are God's acts, not those progressive acts that he does in providence, but his immediate acts. He spoke. And what does the text say? It was so. Eight times. And here, for me, is the issue. Now, all of you know that I'm a six-day creationist. But I can live with other positions if, if people will affirm eight fiat acts, that creation was a work of God done by His Word, and it was so as He did it. Because this is what the first thing that God's Sabbath-keeping, I believe, directs us to. And all the rest of Scripture then, I've been reading through Isaiah as I use McShane's Bible reading calendar, and, and there's two things that God does to assert Himself as the only true God. He prophesies and He created. And again and again, that's the challenge that is thrown out. I am the one who spread out the heavens by my word, who established the earth. And I am the one who tells the end from the beginning. And that's what's being declared here. That's why in the book of Revelation, before we see God as Redeemer in these glorious visions, we see Him as what? As Creator. 4.11 Worthy art Thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou didst create all things. And because of Thy will, they existed and were created. And understand, when it says that thou dost create all things, there has to be a distinction between this kind of creation and providence. We know that God creates babies and that God makes trees. But that is through secondary causes. Here, the emphasis that God is Lord, God is sovereign, God is king, God alone is worthy of all honor and glory and praise because by His word, He did a distinct act of creation and He made all things. And that's the first thing that God's Sabbath-keeping teaches us. It's a declaration that this period that's been placed to this work of God, it is irrepeatable and it's complete. That leads to the second aspect of God's work as, in, his, in His Sabbath-keeping. And that is that God's Sabbath-keeping was a delight in His completed work. Look over to Exodus chapter 31. I have grown to love this verse of Scripture and this whole discussion. Exodus 31, 17, referring to the Sabbath. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and he was refreshed. He refreshed himself. It's the verbal form of the word for soul. He took soul rest. Now what in the world does this mean? Uh, did God get weary in creation? Well, we know that's impossible. He's infinite. He has not a body like man. And, and he reminds us in Isaiah chapter 40 that God does not become weary like us. What does it mean then that he refreshed himself? Well, this is truly a biblical anthropomorphism. Uh, where God uses human terms to describe himself. Now, God doesn't use human terms to describe time. 
I mean, his time, is, is, if it's different. When he talks about time, he operates in time. Anthropomorphism is when God uses human terms to describe himself. And we know that God doesn't have eyes, as we have eyes, but he has something akin to eyes because he knows and he sees all things. He doesn't have fingers, but he does what we do with our hands. And God doesn't need to rest. But there's something in what God does that's akin to what we do. Now what does it mean then when it says that God refreshed himself? Well, what do you often do when you complete a project? Whether you, you just built a cabinet or you planted a garden or you, you made a, a beautiful meal or you completed some project at work and it went well? Huh? You know the feeling? You stand back? Wow. Wow. There was a couple of wows, I think, in Genesis chapter 2. Probably the loudest one is when Adam saw Eve. Wow! <laughs> but here's God's wow. So what we really have here is a wow. You see, what, 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 we're, what we're told is that God refreshed himself by looking at what he's made and taking pleasure in it. You remember that line in, in Chariots of Fire when uh, Eric Liddell is explaining to his sister why he runs? He says, ah, I run because when I run, he takes pleasure. And God takes pleasure. Genesis 1.31, it was all very good. And God's sabotaging was a wow. <laughs> it was, oh, this is glorious. God takes delight in the works of his hands. In the works of his hands as creator. In the works of his hands as redeemer. He takes a wow in us and all of our imperfections. All of our sin. He still can say, wow, as he brings us out of the morass of corruption and misery and makes us a new people for himself. And so God's Sabbath keeping is a contemplation and refreshment as he looks at what he's done. And then the third thing that God does in his Sabbath keeping is a description and promise of eternal rest eternal rest. God rested on the seventh day to show that he has established a rest that he was promising to Adam in the covenant of works and that if Adam would obey God and keep the probation, he would then enter into that rest. Now we see that theology of rest related to God's Sabbath keeping in Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 3 and 4. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now there's the reference to God's rest. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and notice it's the seventh day that God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. So here the writer shows us that the resting of God on the seventh day was a promise, a description, an unfolding of the rest with him, the eternal fellowship and communion with him that he was uh, providing for his people. Now this is why, in my opinion, that the seventh day is left open-ended 
in the revelation of the text and is not, is not concluded by Moses in the same way that the other six days are concluded. Because it's operating here on two levels. The seventh day was, in my opinion, a literal seventh day. And we'll come back to that in a few moments. But it was more than a literal seventh day. It was the day in which God permanently ceased his rest, his, his work of creation, by this Sabbath keeping, by this rest. And in that, it becomes open-ended. And that he never again will do uh, immediate creation uh, outside of, of, of redemption, but in terms of, of the physical world, not immediate creation. Thus, he is offering now a rest to his people. And I believe that in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, the text is spelled out in this way. You know, the analogy is with Melchizedek. Uh, I personally believe that Melchizedek was a, a real human being, just like you and me, who had a father and a mother, and who was born and who died. But the text doesn't tell us those things. Because in God's uh, wise unfolding of revelation in the book of Hebrews, the silence of the text would become the basis of a typology to show that Melchizedek was a priest of a different order. The Aaronic priests could only be priests because they had a specific father and mother and were a specific age, and they died to show that there had to be a succession in their priesthood. Melchizedek is set before us in the record without parent and genealogy and without beginning or end, they might be a picture of the true priest who is priest not by nature of his family but by the appointment of the Father who said, I have sworn that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now that's what's happening with the seventh day. It is, in my opinion, a literal day. It had a sunrise and a sunset, just like the sixth day. But the record leaves it open-ended because what God is doing when he keeps the Sabbath is saying, my Sabbath is not just for me. My Sabbath is for you, Adam. It is for Eve. It is for your descendants that we shall enjoy a rest forever together. And in God's grace, when Adam broke the covenant... God did not cancel the promise of rest, but he renewed it. And he promised the Redeemer who would indeed crush Satan and provide rest for his people. But that Redeemer was to come in the future and thus the church would go from labor to rest as a reminder that the rest giver, the true Shiloh, had not yet come. And so what is God doing when God rests on the seventh day? He is declaring his work of creation complete, full. He is contemplating with delight and joy in that work of creation. And he is declaring to his people the promise and hope of eternal rest with him. And in God's Sabbath keeping, we find exactly what we should be doing on our Sabbath. We should look to him who alone is creator and do exactly what the church does in Revelation 4. 
in the conclusion and praise Him. Because He alone is God and there is none other. He is the maker of heaven and earth and the sustainer of all things. And thus our Sabbath directs us to that great reality that He is the Creator and we are the creature. And we live in dependence upon Him, not in our own strength or might. And as God contemplated His works on creation, He gives us a Sabbath that we might turn aside from everything else and say, wow, at the great work of redemption the most wise and wonderful and powerful thing ever, ever declared to men. And in that we see his beauty as we saw last night and we contemplate the fullness and the sufficiency and the satisfaction and the glory of God as is revealed in redemption. And then we anticipate what is going to be Sabbath is the foretaste of heaven. And here we begin to get a glimpse of what it will be like when we enter perfectly and fully into his Sabbath rest. And so the first thing we see then is the pattern of God's Sabbath keeping. He declares his created work complete. He takes delight in that completed work and he gives us the promise of eternal rest. Which brings us then to the second thing, and that is uh, the prescription for man's Sabbath. And that prescription is found here in verse 3, then, notice the relationship, God rested, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. And in this twofold work of God with respect to the day, the blessing and sanctifying, we find the background of the moral law or the prescription for the Sabbath. There are, the, there are those that suggest that what God does here is not bless the seventh day, but he blesses his eternal rest. But the eternal rest is blessed by the very fact that it's God's eternal rest. There's no need for God to bless something of his own uh, experience and reality. Uh, but furthermore, we know from how Scripture teaches this verse, then he blessed and sanctified the day, that rest of Scripture deals with this as a particular day. Right? Genesis 20, verse 11. We'll come to that in the next hour. The basis of the fourth commandment is this prescription. God worked six days as creator, then he blessed and sanctified the seventh day. Well, we saw the same thing in Exodus 31, 17, the pattern of six and one. And on that seventh day, which is the pattern of our Sabbath, God refreshed himself. And so uh, we have no reason to believe that this is not a day that God is blessing. I remind you of the words of John Murray with respect to this. He says, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. If this is true in the case of Exodus 20.11, the similarity of Genesis 2.3 would lead to the conclusion that in that verse also, reference is made to the reason why the seventh day of our week is sanctified and blessed by God. And so we're talking here about what God did to a day, to the seventh day at this point, 
And he did two things. He blessed the day and he sanctified the day. Now what does it mean when God blesses a thing? I understand when God blesses me and you know what it means when God blesses you. But what, what happens when God blesses a thing? Well, we actually find the answer in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. But we see that God blesses a couple of things here. Well, one's, one's man himself. But um, in verse 22, with respect to the creatures, the sea monsters and the living creatures that move, um, with which the waters swarmed, and the birds, that God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Now you'll find the same language used of man in chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In the creation account, one of the things that God does is assign purpose to every aspect of the creation. And he assigns purpose in a number of ways, but one of the ways he assigns purpose is by his word of blessing. He blessed the animals, and we could take it by figure of speech, this blessing that God gave to the uh, sea creatures and the birds is the same blessing he gave to all the other animals. And the blessing is accompanied with a commandment to multiply and fill. And the same is true with respect to man. That is, to multiply and fill and to subdue and rule over. And so what we see that when God blesses something, he assigns purpose to it and endows it with the power or ability to fulfill that purpose. You see that here? He assigns purpose and endows it with the ability and power to fulfill that purpose. For a long time, I never liked the idea of talking about blessing our meal until I began to understand how that language grew up. It's exactly the same thing. When we ask God to bless our food, what are we saying? We say, we recognize that you've given this, this food that our life might be sustained, that we might serve you. And so bless it now to those ends. You see that? Now this is what God is doing when he blessed the seventh day. He is saying, this day is different. I am giving this day specific purposes that I've spelled out in my own Sabbath keeping, and I make the day then a means of blessing. What did we see last night? In Isaiah 58, 14. Is the Sabbath a means of blessing? Through the Sabbath, you will delight in God, you'll have spiritual victory, and you will enjoy your inheritance as a Christian. And I believe this is the foundation, then, of the language of our Savior when he reminds us that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's going right back to here. God blessed the Sabbath day that it might be a blessing to his image bearer. And that's how we're to look at it then, as a gift of God that we might receive the benefits that God has designed through that gift. You see that? So he blessed the day. And then it makes it all the more clear we understand that he also then sanctified the day. He declared it to be a holy day. Now, all days are holy. All time is holy. All that we have is holy. All of our legitimate work is holy. But we recognize that, that there are special works that God uses to communicate holiness. There, 
it does, it does not rule out that all of life is sacred to say that there are certain uh, things that we do that have a, a sanctity about them that in terms of our relationship to God is defined and, and detailed. And it's the same with time. Yes, all of life is to be lived for the glory of God. But some of life is to be used specifically uh, and, and carefully to promote our relationship to God. It's just that all food is holy, but the Lord's Supper is different, isn't it? That bread and wine is for a, one not to sustain physical life, but to sustain and nurture spiritual life. And, and all time is holy, but God has set aside one day out of seven. Holy. Now, what does God do in the Old Testament when he makes things holy? Well, I told you last night, he sets it aside from everyday common use to the special uses of worship. And once a thing is set aside, it is a serious violation of God's law to treat it as common. One example, Exodus chapter 30. Verse 34. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take for yourself spices, stacta, and anica, and galbanum, spices with pure frankincense. There should be an equal part of each. And with it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. And you shall beat some of it very fine and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you and it shall be most holy to you. And the incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use his perfume shall be cut off from his people. Now here you see something else that God made holy for worship. There was nothing sacred about these various spices. They could be used in all kinds of things in life. But when God's word set them aside in this recipe to be the incense that was burned in the tabernacle and said that it's holy, it then became off limits for all other use. If you'd gone down to the tabernacle this morning and, oh, I like that aroma, I think I'll get some of that incense to burn in my tent. God says, no, no. I'll cut you off. If you do that, this is holy incense. It's to be used exclusively for the purposes of worship. Now, that's what God is saying here when he's sanctified the day. We saw it last night in Isaiah 58, didn't we? If you'll refrain from trampling underfoot my holy day. How? By using it for your own pleasures and purposes. And so God, by sanctifying the day, sets it forth then as a holy day to be used for the holy purposes of worship. Now, when we say this, there are three objections, uh, at least three objections that can be brought to bear. The first is, if this is so, then must we not worship on the seventh day? If God sanctified the seventh day and made it holy, then aren't the Seventh-day Adventists correct 
Yes, that there remains a Sabbath for the people of God, but it must be on the seventh day of the week. Now we'll get more into that uh, Thursday morning. We look at Colossians 2 and Hebrews 4. But let me go back to our analogy of, of positive and, and moral law to help you understand this. And that is that most of the laws, particularly in the Ten Commandments, are what the Puritans called moral positive. And that is that there is a moral law, but it often had um, temporal aspects that were uh, joined to it that would change according to God's purposes for his people. Uh, illustration. Uh, if um, Exodus 20.12, the sixth commandment, God says that uh, he will prolong the life of the children in the land which he will give them. Now there you have a moral commandment that children are to honor and obey their parents and all that that brings with it in terms of, of all of the relationships. And you have a positive aspect in terms of the promise that's related to the land inheritance, right? And you'll perhaps remember how Paul just subtly changes that language in Ephesians chapter 6, where he says that uh, I will prolong your life in the land. It's no longer the land that was given. We're not talking now about the land inheritance and, and the people corporately being kept in the land, but now we're talking about a general pattern of a prosperous and long life for those that uh, honor their parents in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the, the sixth commandment had with it positive aspects that were changed by the Apostle Paul without violating the moral nature of the commandment. Or the marriage commandment, it's, it's like the Sabbath commandment there in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, and out of that, we know that God is establishing monogamous marriage. But the Bible also has laws of consanguinity, how close within blood relationship that one may Mary. And evidently, it cannot be a sin inherently evil for a man to marry his sister. I know that we describe some experiences that's like kissing your sister, and that's true in our own uh, uh, thing. It's pretty dull, but um, <laughs> it wasn't dull for Abel and Seth, um, for Cain, and it, it wasn't a moral evil. Uh, and so, uh, and you, you'll find tighter laws of consanguinity in the Old Testament law than you'll find even in the New Testament law. So you see that, that you've got the moral law of monogamous marriage, and then you have uh, some positive laws that are attached to that. Well, that's how we are to look at the Lord's Day or the Sabbath. The positive law, the moral law is that there must be a portion of time given exclusively to the purposes of God in his worship and fellowship and communion. Now, that that time be one whole day on a seventh-day pattern and not half a day on a seventh-day pattern or one whole day in an eight-day pattern, that is God's uh, way of working out the moral law. And so that the, the day of the week is not part of the moral requirement, it was the positive requirement for the Old Covenant people. As we'll see, God had purposes for having the day at the end of the week uh, in the Old Covenant and now the first day of the week in the New Covenant.
We can talk about that more later if you have questions. A second uh, objection that is brought to bear is there's no specific commandment here. We only have this act of God of blessing and sanctifying. But the same may be true said of, of, of marriage. It, there's a declaration that man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, the two should be one flesh. But God doesn't command their marriage. But when Christ in Matthew 19 talks about the marriage commandment, he goes back to this passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 2. What God does is of essence a commandment in blessing and sanctifying. And then the third objection is, well, there's no example then of, of the people of God keeping the Sabbath uh, between its uh, giving here in Genesis 2 and uh, its recapitulation in the fourth commandment. Well, in the first place, even if that were true, that proves nothing. We also know that God gave a law of monogamous marriage in Genesis chapter 2, and it didn't take God's people too long to fall into polygamy, did it? And because they practiced polygamy, did that mean that that this commandment wasn't given at creation? No. But furthermore, there are examples in Scripture that uh, surely suggest that uh, God's people knew and practiced this. I'll just give you two. In Genesis chapter 4, most of the older writers uh, interpret this language to refer to the Sabbath um, when it says in Genesis 4, 3, it came about in the course of time. Literally, the word is at the end of days. And it suggests the week. Well, we know that not not just in the Bible, but in all cultures, the number seven was a sign of perfection and the seven-day week was a part of the culture and the seventh day, even in pagan cultures, was a sacred day. And here we see the end of days, they came for their special worship of God. And then, of course, we have the clearer example in Exodus chapter 16, verse 29, where God says they may not pick up manna on the Sabbath because it's the Sabbath that he gave them. So he's implying there that they knew something about it. And so I believe that we've answered the question, at least obviously I've answered it for myself, that we have here in this creation ordinance a moral command. Part of God's own nature to rest and refresh himself in contemplation and to demonstrate the eternal life. It governs our relationship to him. Thus he has blessed the day and sanctified it for our benefit and spiritual pleasure and for his glory. Now in the next hour we'll come and look at how the fourth commandment relates to this, but let me just conclude this study with uh, this uh, great quotation from my good friend R.L. Dabney who hangs over here on the wall. The reason that the ceremonial laws were temporary was that the necessity for them was temporary. They were abrogated because they were no longer needed. But the practical need for the Sabbath is the same in all ages. When it is made to appear that this day is the bulwark of practical religion in the world, that its proper observance everywhere goes hand in hand with piety and the true worship of God, that where there is no Sabbath, there is no Christianity. That's frightening, isn't it? It becomes an impossible supposition that God should make the institution temporary. The necessity for the Sabbath has not ceased. Therefore, it is not abrogated. In its nature, as well as its necessity, it is a permanent moral command. All such laws are as incapable of change as the God in whose character they are founded. 
Unlike mere positive or ceremonial ordinances, the authority of which ceases as soon as God sees fit to repeal the command for them, moral precepts, precepts can never be repealed because the purpose to repeal them would imply a change in the unchangeable and a deprivation in the perfect character of God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you are our God and Savior. We thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit will indeed give us insight here as we think through these issues. Give us a clarity of thought. Give us a submission to your word. Let us find in your Sabbath those pleasures and delights that you've appointed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.